are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. Today, we're having Tim Schrock, a journalist, who's going to talk to us about privatized military intelligence and coin. You've had an interesting upbringing where you've spent a lot of time in Japan and Korea. Like, do tell us about that. Well, I went to Japan when I was one and I uh, went to Korea when I was about nine. My parents were working as officially as missionaries. Uh, what they really were, though, the actual work they did was relief work. My dad worked for many years uh, providing you know, relief to Japan in the aftermath of World War II, and he did the same thing in Korea in the aftermath of the Korean War. Uh, so, you know, I grew up overseas, I grew up there and, you know, during a, during the Cold War and, you know, during the tail end of the Korean War and uh, all through the Vietnam War. So that was, a, you know, my introduction to sort of polit- American politics and American foreign policy. Uh, okay. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And do you still work for The Baffler? No, no, no. That was just a, I'm a, I've been a freelancer for, for many years, and that was a freelance article. I've done a couple articles for The Baffler. That was probably the most in-depth piece I ever did. So you've spent a lot of time in the Far East, and then you came back to Washington, and you've worked as a journalist for the past how many years, I guess? Well, actually, I didn't come directly here. Uh, I lived in the, I went to college in the Midwest, in Indiana, and I went to graduate school in the late, starting in the late 70s at the University of Oregon. And so I was in, uh, you know, I was on the West Coast a lot. Uh, After I got my degree in Asian studies, where I learned a lot more about Japan and Korea during the Cold War. That's what I kind of focused on in my graduate work. I was also very active in the peace movement, anti-war movement at the time, and that was probably why I went to uh, graduate school. And, you know, I wanted to really sharpen my knowledge of of the U.S. involvement in Asia. And I wanted to be a journalist. And, uh, you know, so I I eventually, uh, you know, moved to D.C. in early 80s, actually 1982, 1983, and I worked for some, you know, so-called progressive media here uh, for for a little while, and then I went into sort of mainstream business reporting, and um, in part because uh, my early experience here working for nonprofits was very negative. They don't really like workers to organize and to have unions. And so I was unceremoniously fired by Ralph Nader, who was my first boss here for, among other things, trying to organize a union and actually successfully organizing a union. Uh, so I went into the mainstream press and I learned reporting sort of, you know, as a, as a, almost like a cub reporter in the business press. I learned like a lot of basic stuff about reporting and I ended up working for a newspaper for many years called the Journal of Commerce, which covered the maritime industry and also global trade and everything, everything attached to you know global trade and logistics, which involves you know everything from environmental issues to you know Congress to labor to you know workers 
and, and so on. So it was a pretty, you know, interesting time. And I covered a lot of, learned a lot about, you know, how business works and doesn't work and the relationship between business and government. And I got very interested in the, uh, in the, in the sort of what I saw in the late 80s and the 90s as a sort of integration of national security and business, you know. That's actually um, something we should talk about because that is kind of has to do with what the main topic is. So if you were like, like what was different about the, I guess, integration, like what happened in the 80s when then it started as when the business community got more and more involved in national security? Well, it always has been, of course, you know, but, but uh, I mean, there's the, you know, there's the military industrial complex that Eisenhower warned about it, its undue influence when he left office in 1961. But, you know, that's always been there, of course. But what we're talking about here is the actual integration of business with, you know, defense and military operations and intelligence operations. And the privatizing of intelligence sort of took off uh, in the in the 90s really after you know in the in the in the early 1990s as a result of the end of the well the collapse of the Soviet Union and sort of the end of that phase of the Cold War uh, you know intelligence and defense budgets were cut in the US and by 30 40 percent for a couple of years uh, this was the so-called peace dividend Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of, you know, in fact, the uh, in the early 1990s, as part of the so-called dividend for the end of the Cold War, budgets were cut, and intelligence personnel roles were also cut. You know, the CIA, the NSA, about 30% of the employees were let go, and a lot of them, of course, you know, sought work in the defense sector and got work as military contractors. But in terms of the government, you know, using private contractors and intelligence operations, that kind of began in the latter part of the Clinton administration when there was a focus on, you know, they were trying to focus on making government more efficient, this program they inaugurated called Reinventing Government. And a lot of what that meant throughout the government was actually, you know, privatizing certain operations. and so. In, in, you know, in, the, in the latter part of the Clinton administration, there was an intense war with, with, with Serbia, uh, you know, the, the war in that, in that part of Europe. And then there was this near war with North Korea. When, so as a result of both, there was this need for intelligence uh, in both places. And, in, in, you know, in, in, in some of the first intelligence contracting was done, you know, like in the war in Bosnia when U.S. forces were there and there were some intelligence contractors that were like running NSA listening posts and that kind of thing. And the use of these contractors was, you know, starting to grow in the late 1990s and into 2000. And then, of course, there was 9-11, and then after 9-11 and the whole response, the U.S. military response to the al-Qaeda attacks, uh, there was massive increase in U.S. intelligence budget, massive increase, billions and billions of you know, dollars flooding in 
And a lot of that was spent on contractors. And so contractors, you know, became almost, you know, essential parts of U.S. military and intelligence operations in the years after the September 11 attacks, you know, 2002, 2003, budgets really increased. And you saw this, you know, enormous uh, rise in, in the, use of these, uh, the use of these companies. WikiLeaks seemed to have released files for Stratfor, which had so much information. And they're a private company. I believe it's owned by Sergio Popovich, the guy who helped with the coup in Serbia, but I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, no, that, it, was a, it's a, it still is a private in, you know, intelligence company. Um, but, you know, those were, you know, that, those leaks were significant, but, they, you know, they didn't really, I mean, they, they, they were interesting in some areas and some people have, you know, taken some of the information and discovered more about certain operations. But, you know, when I'm talking about intelligence contracting, I am usually talking about the contracting of, you know, strategic operations. Okay, um, so I guess this brings us to our main topic. So you write about a program called COIN, C-O-I-N, and what is COIN? Well, it's a short for counterinsurgency. It's counterinsurgency is, you know, obviously against insurgency. So it's how the United States has been fighting war against, fighting to stop or end or win over wars of, of liberation, uh, struggles and, you know, anti-colonial struggles. You mean to stop the anti-colonial struggles, Well, right? the idea is, you know, in Vietnam, it was like, okay, um, you know, just, you know, shelling and bombing people is not really, you know, going to do anything. So let's, you know, direct our efforts at the people, you know, let's, let's try to, so they come in and they say, look, we, you know, we, you know, the U.S. government or we, the U.S. government's ally in your country, we can, you know, we can uh, provide much more for you than your, your, you know, your communist insurgents or your Taliban or whatever. We can do it much better and we will win your hearts and minds. And so like, you know, in Vietnam, there began to be this focus. The people began the, the focus the people almost became the enemy, the subject of military operations, as opposed to military operations that go after soldiers. Here, the idea began to be, uh, you know, it, uh, the, the, the people would, would be the focus. In other words, the U.S. would try to convince them, win them over to the anti-communist side, to the pro-U.S. side of whatever battle they were fighting, whether it was in southern korea or the british in malaya after world war ii when there was a, a large communist led insurgency and then of course in vietnam where you know the people were in 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 south south vietnam were increasingly uh against the u.s installed dm government and its programs and people began you know a popular uprising against this this uh, U.S. installed dictator, and and that's where that was where the insurgency, the National Liberation Front, also known as the Viet Cong, began 
you know, making gains in the early 60s. And, you know, Kennedy's, John F. Kennedy's response was to send in, you know, special forces, Green Berets, but they would also work with, you know, work with the people to try to improve their lives. And part of the idea began to be to separate the people from the guerrillas and they would build these, you know, camps for the villagers and which essentially became kind of concentration camps. They were called the strategic hamlets. Exactly, strategic hamlets. And they, you know, they, they really adopted the idea. And in fact, they used some of the British uh, advisors on this. There was a, there was a British general who sort of, uh, you know, led this strategy when the British were fighting communist guerrillas in Malaya. In, in the post-war years, and and they did this, they did these strategic hamlets, you know, there in, in, in Malaya, and they, that was a big part of the U.S. policy, you know, in, in, in Vietnam, in southern Vietnam, and so it went, you know, it went hand in glove with, you know, intense violence, right? You try to win over the people, supposedly, win their hearts and minds, but meanwhile, you're going after their cadre, you're going after the the army that's, you know, trying to fight for that people. And often winning hearts and minds include forcibly relocating millions to strategic hamlets and or like crowding them into the cities where they don't have jobs or. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, 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 you know, and, and so you'll see, I mean, look what the U.S. did in Afghanistan. It's like, you know, for, for the first, you know, after, you know, fighting Al Qaeda and then, and then the Taliban. Uh, under 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 Clinton, uh, under 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 Clinton, uh, I mean, excuse me, um, under Obama, you know, in the first years of the Obama administration, they tried this hearts and minds strategy in in um, Afghanistan, and that gets to this article you wanted me to talk about, which is this article I wrote in the Baffler magazine uh, a few years ago about. The, you know, sort of the rise of counterinsurgency, it's called, in the, the, we call it the modern history of an unstoppable bad idea. And I traced, you know, counterinsurgency operations back to, back to Vietnam and, and other war, U.S. counterinsurgency wars, say, in the Philippines. And then I talk about some of the key figures in the counterinsurgency, including David Petraeus, the infamous U.S. general, and, the, and then... David Kilcullen, who is this Australian. Okay, um, so let's get a, let's slow down a little bit because we want to kind of uh, break this article apart for the audience. So let's start around two, uh, I believe it was right after uh, David Petraeus. He was appointed in the late 2007 and early 2008 to do the Sunni surge, right? It, right before America was in theory supposed right. to. Okay. So the Sunni surge, for those of you who don't know, was where they ended up giving millions or billions of dollars to very extremist Sunni factions as yeah. a way of, quote unquote, subduing them. Who And a few years later, of course, we got al-Nusra, al-ISIS and all that. But David Petraeus was a big fan of the counterinsurgency, as you use the word, gospel. What did he suggest? Well, uh, this guy who later became, uh, you know, Trump's national security advisor, 
Uh, you mean Obama's, I, right? No, no, no. I'm talking about Trump's first uh, national security advisor, not uh, who, who, who. Not Petraeus. McMaster. McMaster. When McMaster was a general in Iraq, he got all this attention, particularly from the liberal press like the New Yorker, for being the key guy on the ground in the new counterinsurgency strategy that had been endorsed by David Petraeus. And so the idea was, uh, you know, you went all, like, so when the Sunnis were in this, you know, uprising, you know, against uh, the U.S. for toppling Saddam, who was not necessarily Sunni, but it was a basically Sunni uh, dominated country when he was in, in power. So there was a Sunni opposition and, you know, the war got pretty vicious. And, and so the idea was to win over the Sunni communities. And so they, that's, that's what they did. They went over, they would win over certain elders and then their fighting forces uh, within the Sunnis and, and, you know, aim their, in their public works programs at the populations in those areas. So they were, you know, like, as I said before, where the U.S. and their, and their personally picked, you know, government trying to show that they, they can govern much better than the enemy, right? And so they provide all these, you know, social services. And, you but know, build, those social services are privatized and they mostly help American companies, right? Well, yeah, of course, there was a lot of that. But, I mean, that's what they would do. The idea would be to bring in, you know, companies to, you know, the, the idea was to improve the water system or improve various parts of the infrastructure. And, yeah, and in, inevitably, American contractors were brought in. A lot of them and were corrupt and inflated their prices and never built the projects they were supposed to build and so on and so forth. You know, so it was a, it was a, that was a huge scam. And like over the last few years, you know, there was this, you know, inspector general that was appointed by Congress to monitor all the contracting in Afghanistan. And he's done, that group has done report after report on just a massive amount of corruption uh, and failure within this program. Uh, because, you know, the money never seems to get to, this is true anywhere really but they never the money never seems to get to the people that really you know they need it and you know in, in afghanistan it helped foment an, a culture of corruption um so but you know counterinsurgency is really war it's a form of warfare where you adopt you know various economic and political programs in addition to going after you know killing people right so it's a it's all part of the program. Okay, so during the counterinsurgency, we hear about this character named David Kilcullen a lot. Who is he? What does he do? And what is going on? Well, David Kilcullen is from Australia. He, he used to work for the Aust Australian Special Forces, which had which conducted some operations with their allies, the Suharto government of Indonesia, to subdue rebellions in Indonesia. And he picked up, um, you know, lots of experience fighting insurgent groups there. And he came up with some, some theories uh, 
you know, some, some, some theories about how to win over those kind of populations that you're fighting that became sort of a core of the counterinsurgency doctrine. What were his theories? Well, it's, it's basically, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's really, uh, you know, words. I mean, you know, uh, you know, he had this idea that, that you could, but, you know, it, it, it was just, there was nothing really special about what he said, I don't think. It was, just a, it was just a sort of framework that he would put it in. But it was just more like he called it, one of his theories was, you know, he called it armed social work, if you can imagine that. Uh... You know, so, so, so it's like, uh, you, know, you know, employing money as a weapon systems. Money can be, here's a quote from him, money can be ammunition. Uh, you know, so that makes counterinsurgency armed social work. So, you know, bullets plus, you know, social, you know, programs makes that makes counterinsurgency. And, and he and he actually believed that he advocated for like what he called a global counterinsurgency, where this would be done. This would be a core of U.S. foreign policy all over the world and combating, you know, governments and, you know, movements that are contrary to, in their view, U.S. national interests. Uh, and this whole idea of sort of adding social work to war and combining them became, you know, this really popular theory among liberals, too. As I write in this article, you know, certain reporters in the U.S. media, like Rachel Maddow, love to have this guy kill Cohen on, on her TV show. Because it sounded so, you know, humane and humanitarian, you know, a new, new kind of warfare where, you know, you're trying to make lives better of the people. Um, and it's, you know, another term for it is nation building. You know, oh. so it's like, you know, you, you help, you show that you can build up another person's nation better than the, count, than, than the insurgents can. And you know, one of the key proponents of counterinsurgency during that time uh, was Michelle Flournoy, who was with the Pentagon, Obama's Pentagon, and she is now uh, probably going to be the Secretary of Defense if Biden wins the presidency. You know, so I, these ideas are, are, you know, strongly held by certain, you know, groups of military people, and they're, they're they're fairly, you know, common in the U.S. And depending on the situation, people say, you know, oh, we should apply counterinsurgency. But, you know, basically, uh, you know, because you're also killing people uh, and bombing people, it doesn't really work. You don't really win people over by doing For me, I've always thought counterinsurgency is where you just get death squads to go and kill a whole bunch of villagers. But I guess... <laughs> Well, that happens, but it's, you know, it's under this larger guise of hearts and minds and winning their hearts and minds, you know, with, with aid programs and public relations programs and, you know, media and all, you know, all kinds of, all kinds of, of forums, you know, like, it's like, you know, I quoted uh, somebody in my article named Matthew Ho, who was a Marine who had served in Iraq and worked for the State Department in Afghanistan, and when the war when the surge began, he resigned. So this is ridiculous. And like he, he was, you know, he told me how, you know, like the, the organizations like the Center for New America Security that was set up by Flournoy and others in the early part of the Obama administration, 
you know, they saw, uh, they saw counterinsurgency as a way that Democrats could look tough and be hawkish and be smart in fighting wars in contrast to, you know, Bush's just, you know, invasion, right? So let's not just invade countries. Let's, you know, like really work uh, and and try to convince the people and you know have this big social program. So it's just it's just you know it's just another form of warfare. It's it's just uh, more. Some people mistakenly think it's actually a more humane uh, form of warfare, but it's just as inhumane, and it goes along with you know drone strikes and all kinds of uh, military operations that that essentially you know kill people and innocent people, kill soldiers and innocent people. Want to do some armed social work yourself? Shoot us with some cash by subscribing to our Substack at historically.substack.com. There you can check out other episodes of the podcast, subscribe to our newsletter, and find out how to catch our live streams on Twitch and YouTube. That's historically.substack.com. Also, do you need the perfect follow-up to Catterday? Learn more about feline friend and revolutionary Vladimir Ilyich Ulanov on Twitch by tuning into our Sundays with Lenin on twitch.tv forward slash historically. So you mentioned how many liberal news sources really like this idea of counterinsurgency, but I have to say that it's not just liberal news sources because a few weeks ago when I first contacted you, you called out The Intercept for their praise of David having, so can you explain what happened there? Well, Jeremy Scahill has a show called Intercepted, which is this podcast, right? And it's very popular. And of course, Scahill wrote this book, Blackwater, about, you know, this, this mercenary group that was, that was, you know, very active in, in Afghanistan, especially. and it was, you know, basically they were taking part in counterinsurgency too. And, you know, and the Intercept was founded by people that are supposedly critics of U.S. national security and so on and so forth. But um, they ran, when he was, I guess, on leave or something, someone else took over his show. Mehdi Hassan. And they did an interview with this, they did an interview with David Kilcullen, this counterinsurgency expert. Uh, and have him talking about, you know, COVID-19. And I called him out on that. And, of course, the, uh, the, the guy who's the writer, uh, he doesn't... He blocks, he, he, yeah, he blocks me on Twitter anyway. I haven't... He, I, I can never read his tweets, but, you know, he... he for, you know, I didn't even... I, I mean, I was fairly mild in my critique. I just, I just was stunned that anybody would think who anyone who thinks they're on the left or any war would run this, this counterinsurgent who is a murderer, basically. Yeah. And has made huge amounts of money by promoting these ideas. And, then, and, and you know, so then he attacked me as, as you know, Being old. The, oldest, the oldest journalist over 60 that no one has ever heard about, and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, they, the, the people at The Intercept have a very, very hard time with, taking, accepting any kind of criticism from the left. And this was, this was an extreme example. I love Glenn Greenwald and Ryan Grimm. And if you're listening, please don't take this personally. But 
I do notice that there is a large staff of inter from the Intercept that seem to be only running one side of the narrative in Syria, where it's like anti-Assad and very pro-moderate rebel. And they also had this really cringy, like, okay, so this, so they got these quote-unquote leaks from, somebody sent them these leaks from Iran. And in my humble opinion, it was probably the State Department. Like, it was, like, strategically timed, but then they ran the article. And in that article, Murta the guy who blocked you, Murtaza Hussein, he made, like, a really basic error about Iran, and I corrected him, and he blocked me, too. But, That's yeah. Typical, but, like, you know, look, with all due respect, I think, uh, you know, Greenwald is the founder, and Scahill is the founder. They were the co-founders. You know, they, they, they've, they've hired a lot of wackos there. There's some good reporters there, there's some wackos there, but they do not take responsibility for their own mistakes. Uh, you know, I'm, you know, you know, Winter, that woman who was jailed for, you know, leaking information about... Reality. Reality winner, right. I mean, that was a complete screw-up by The Intercept. They got a document from her, from somebody, and they sent the original to the NSA to look at. That's like a, a, a that, that's how she got caught, because they were able to trace, they were able to figure out where her document was printed, and they were able to figure out it was her. That is a lesson any investigative journalist should learn when you're, you know, as a cub reporter, you never show an original to a source that well, a leaked document because you have they, to type it up again <laughs> well you have to do something but that was like an elementary reason and that was you know i mean so they, yeah so yeah they they have lots of money they're funded by a billionaire so they can put money into her defense fund but they never took re responsibility for that and they, they 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 you know so that's what i'm talking about and you know but getting back to this this you know article this this interview they had with kill cullen I mean, why would, why is a killer who, is, who makes money from war, why is he someone they, they see as credible to talk about tackling COVID-19? It's a real mystery to me. And that certainly is not a challenge to the military industrial complex or the status quo or, you know, national security interests that they supposedly, you know, are stand for. So I thought it was very hypocritical, but just a sign of like really weak politics. Like I said, they have huge holes in their coverage of the Middle East, especially Syria, that should be eventually rectified if possible. So David Kilcullen has like some sort of private contract in Iraq, or is it in Syria? Well, he now? did. He had a. He had a. The, the reason I I got into him was, I got I really started looking at him was that about five years ago, uh, a a source of mine. In the uh, you know in the in, in the intelligence special forces world, uh, gave me uh, leaked to me a CD-ROM with hundreds and hundreds of documents from his company, which was called Keras, C A E R U S, Keras mm -hmm. Global Solutions, and you know the, the someone wanted to get me this these documents, these corporate documents. And the person who gave it to me didn't really have any explanation for any of them, just was passing it on. So I spent a couple of months looking at them. A lot of them were contracts. Uh, but it turned out that this company, you know, Kilcullen was the chief counterinsurgency advisor 
to General Petraeus in Iraq, and then he was this, when Petraeus was in Afghanistan under Obama, he was also the chief counterinsurgency advisor then, and then after Petraeus left and McChrystal came in, he also worked for him. And so the U.S. command in, in Afghanistan, the Central Command, had a counterinsurgency operation uh, in Kabul, and it was the whole thing was run by contractors. And and he was the sort of like the Kilcullen basically ran that ran that shop, and his company ran and staffed it. So it was all contractors, and his company got all these contracts. You know, not only with the U.S. military, but with uh, with also um, the USAID Agency for International Development, which is a you know critical part of of, of counterinsurgency. The aid part is a critical part, as I explained before. So Kilcullen was basically running the counterinsurgency operations there as head of this contracted counterinsurgency shop that was under the generals, the top generals there. And that's and that were the documents of his company. And, you know, so as I looked through the documents, I could see for proposals, contract proposals, who they were working with. They were working with uh, companies like giant contractors like SAIC, um, you know, and, and other big military contractors. And I got this SAIC contract uh, copy of one that was part of these documents that they had bid for. And the contract was, you know, basically for counterinsurgency missions uh, and intelligence. And part of Kilcullen's um, proposal, contract proposal, was to provide uh, uh provide pers contracted personnel who could analyze national security inter national security agency intercepts you know so they were they were analyzing NSA NSA intercepts NSA intelligence that was provided to the military of you know moves by insurgents or whatever right so um, it was pretty interesting and I had so I finally was able to put up put together the story uh, I, the story was turned down by a couple publications and finally I was able to get it in the baffler and, you know, to, I tried to, I talked to a lot of people doing this article, generals that were involved in the counterinsurgency and U.S. officials who were, and I, you know, I kept trying to talk to Kilcullen and his company, but they made it really difficult. And, uh, I mean, they made it impossible. It was impossible. They wouldn't talk. And uh, so I finally had to confront him at a, some kind of, some kind of, uh, you know, function where he was speaking, and he told me that I was a conspiracy theorist and blah blah blah. Um, but the information was out there, and I think that actually some of the information I got about him was actually quite um, damaging to him because. I found out while I was working on my story that his company uh, was under investigation uh, by the Defense Security Service, which monitors and has oversight over all security clearances. Uh, apparently, because uh, uh, as a foreigner, as an Australian, even though it's part of Five Eyes, Five Eyes, the global NSA system, uh, he did not have the right clearances to get some of this 
NSA uh, data they were getting. And his company, uh, you know, quickly after I found out about this and started asking questions about it, he left the company right away and, and you know, kind of faded away for a while. And uh, I, think, I, I think the fact that he, he was so fla- he, he was such a flagrant abuser in terms of like uh, always talking to press, he, was, he really tried to build himself up as this great, you know, uh, ins- counterinsurgent leader and a really smart thinker on war. And, and I think, you know, obviously, I think that really hurt him with his contracted company, his, his contracting company. Do you remember his idea of a 50-year or 100-year war? <laughs> it's ridiculous. I mean, it, you know, it's just basically, you know, it sees the whole world as enemy, right? Uh, sees the whole world as enemy territory, and people all around the world are targets of, you know, some kind of joint military social work campaign to, to have them, you know, become part of the pro-U.S. camp, is basically is what it's all about. So, you know, uh, you know, in Vietnam, uh, the U.S. tried to, you know, create what they called the third way, right? The third force, a third force between outright pro-French colonialism versus the communist-led NLF and North Vietnam. So they wanted something in the middle that would be like, you know, non-communist and also uh, non-colonial, and so they, they, that's that's what they also try. They tried that during the Cold War, and they and they try essentially the same model in places like Afghanistan and Syria. You know, so like, oh, okay, so you're not you're not pro Assad, but you're also not you're, you're also pro American. So okay, we'll work with you, right? We're, Even we're, if you are Al Qaeda and you behead children. Even if you're Al Qaeda or, or allied with Al Qaeda, and you know that will work with you, just like they worked with, you know, some real killer groups in F, you know, in, in Iraq. I mean, they hired they, they, they hired you know, they they basically put together death squads in Iraq, um, and you know, people were in Iraq who had done the same thing in El Salvador during the war in, in the 1980s, you know, when, when, they, when they would, uh, you know, try to win people over, you know, to, to fight the fat. You were there, they wanted someone who would be between the fascist governments of El Salvador and the communist insurgents, communist-led insurgents, because it was always a coalition. So then they got the Tigre with the death squads that exterminated yeah, they, villages. <laughs> well, the death squads in El Salvador killed tens of thousands of, you know, leftists, organizers, trade unionists, teachers. Priests. Priests, exactly. Not only priests, bishops, mm-hmm. Bishop Romero, they killed him in his own church. Yep. I mean, it's an incredibly vicious kind of war. And, you know, the same thing happened in El Salvador in terms of aid. You know, like U.S. aid was huge during those years when there were supporting these right-wing uh, death squad governments. And, you know, the, the AFL-CIO labor groups were funded, you know, by the U.S. government to try to find this so-called third way in El Salvador. And, uh, you know, so this has become a, you know, a strategy that's used 
all around the world in different situations. And, um, you know, you know, I, I think the, the real opposition to it in Washington has come from more conservative military people who just see it as, as you know, sort of a, uh, I, mean, and they, I mean, they see through the lies. They, they, they know that it's a form of warfare, but they also think that, you know, if you're going to fight an enemy, you know, go after the enemy, go after those soldiers. Um, you know, in, instead of like, you know, having this whole big social program and, and nation building. And you'll notice, you know, in debates around politics about to do in Afghanistan the last few years, you know, like, like people would say, oh, we're not into nation building. You know, that, that's a code word for we're not into counterinsurgency. Instead of nation building, we want to just, you know, fight the terrorists or, you know, something. So it's like, you know, warfare aimed at certain, you know, individuals and groups uh, that are armed versus warfare aimed at them, plus trying to, you know, buy off the people. Yeah, and I guess it's never been effective. And I was just like looking through the, uh, it was, I'm sorry, I apologize. It was not, uh, it was not, um, what's his name, Mehdi, who's trying to win oh, his no, 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 it, was, it was Murtaza. Yeah, 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 they're right. You get them, get, you got to get them straight. I think they may both block me, but yeah, Murtaza's the one who went after me as a yeah. washed, Me- up, uh, washed up old over 60s guy no one ever heard of. Okay. Uh, I just I just thought that was so funny. But I mean, you know, like going after people because of their age is really pretty, pretty low. But, you know, that's that's like their style. No one's ever heard of Murtaza either. Um. <laughs> Oh. Well, you know, look, look, I, I, don't, I don't, I'm not in this world to get famous anyway. I don't give, I don't care about that. But I do know that there is thousands and thousands and thousands of people in Korea that follow my work very closely, and lots of people here do. So, you know, I'm proud of the work I've done over 40 years, and you know, someone like that, no respect. And so with the David Kilcullen, like, yeah, he was talking about the COVID crisis, seeing how anti-insurgency ideas can be used and it's like you're not an epidemiologist like why are you opining on this what other works are have you been working on well i haven't been working on this but um i mean i follow this kind of debate a lot but i mean i'm working on a history of the u.s uh intervention in korea from, oh that's a good one from uh you know from 1945 to now Oh, yeah, that's a very good one, because most people do not understand who Sinkman Rhee was or, or what well, happened. Most people, most people don't know anything about Korea. I mean, you know, the, the U.S. takes, it's just myths. It's myths and lies about how the Korean War started and the U.S. role in the Korean War. It's just disgraceful. What, you know, the, 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 here's this country we've been intimately involved with, and Americans know almost nothing about it, its history or anything or why we still have 28,500 troops still there, what they're doing there when South Korea has this massive military of its own. And there's just, no, you know, it's everything in the literature and the media is all like, it's all framed as like good USA versus bad North Korea. And there's nothing, in, there's nothing in between. And, you know, South Korea is not even considered a player, not even considered part of the discussion. But the thing is that, there was an election in August of 1945, an entire month before America came. 
and the Koreans had already picked who they wanted as their leader, and they wanted one Korea, and the well, U.S. Well, actually, there was, actually, no, I'd, I'd correct you on that. There's not, there wasn't an election. There was the people organized to, people had self-organized these, what were called people's committees, all throughout Korea, and there, there were, there were, there were, there were basically the people's committees were made up of lots of different, you know, people in the different locales where they were established, including communists, including people who fought the Japanese colonialists, including, you know, religious figures, landowners, all kinds of people formed these committees. And, and the idea, you know, people wanted to have one Korea and objected to the Soviet Union and the U.S., you know, dividing it and then trying to place it under some kind of trusteeship for a while. Because, you know, the U.S. and the Soviets agreed that, you know, Korea was not ready for self-government. But, you know, there was, uh, you know, then, you know, in, there was, a, you know, when the Soviets occupied the north part and the U.S. occupied the south part, uh, nationwide there was, you know, a huge, people were mobilized against colonialism and didn't want colonialism anymore and didn't want to, you know, wanted land reform and wanted major changes in the way the society ran. And, and because the, the way it worked, you know, was that the, the, the uh, uh, you know, in, in the north, in the north part, you know, Kim Il-sung and some other uh, communists who had led the fight against the Japanese colonialists, there was a, there was a coalition of different communists actually took over took over there and the, but the US within two years it, it, it basically and, and, and you know there's a thorough you know kill, a cleansing in the north of all the Japanese colonial officials who were there and the police uh, who are obviously under colonialism extremely repressive and in the US in the south the US made this blunder uh, purposeful blunder I would say of keeping many of the Japanese police in power for a while, and then only working with very conservative right-wing pro-Japanese you know, Japanese collaborators who made up, the, made up the government when it was finally established. Before, 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 in 1948, there was two states were formed. South Korea, the Republic of Korea was organized before North Korea was. was that was the initial move. And and then you know the divisions became harder, especially in the South, because there was a major counterinsurgency war that the U.S. fought and led there from 1947 to you know to when the full-scale Korean War began in 1950, and counterinsurgency was a big part of that strategy, both in the South and in the North. So it's a lot of history there that I'm trying to bring the light that you know goes all the way up to today of course he well wasn't um park like he even had a japanese name and he fought with the japanese troops yeah he was it was lieutenant okamoto in the japanese imperial army and uh you know you know a lot of koreans and japanese are familiar with his history but like you know the current prime minister of japan abe his grandfather kishi who was a later became prime minister of Japan. Kishi was one of the colonial officials uh, running Japan's colony in Manchuria in Korea. And his troops went against, you know, fought against Kim Il-sung in the, in the north part and in Manchuria. You know, so 
Abe has this long history, his family does, you know, fighting North Korean, fighting Korean communists. And, and this is a kind of history that most Americans are completely unaware of. Like, you know, when, when every time there's a so-called crisis on the Korean peninsula, who does Trump call? He doesn't call, you know, he doesn't call Moon Jae-in, the president of South Korea first. He calls the prime minister of Japan, Abe Shinzo first. And, you know, this is an old, Beck, this is really a colonial relationship that they're keeping alive. Why does Japan have interests? You know, why is Japan the first one Trump calls? Uh, you know, so it's, it's, this goes way back. And that kind of history, you know, really needs to be, really needs to be told if we're gonna understand uh, what the right course to take in Korea, because, uh, you know, whether Trump wins and tries to continue by cutting a deal with North Korea, or Biden comes in with a more uh, hawkish position and still and tries to do something, we have to understand what led up to this and what the real history is. So we can make our own decisions and make our own uh, you know, you know, make our own minds up about what's the right course. Exactly. And then there's also, of course, the 900 billion trillion amounts of like coup change attempted to the north, successful coup changes in the south, like the interference is well, there's never There's never been a coup in the north. No, attempted. Attempted, no, but there's never been a successful one. No, no, there's never uh, been, but they've tried a billion times. And in the South, they have had successful coups. Right. I mean, you know, to be fair, now, South, I mean, South Korea, until really the late 1980s, was a, a very, it was an authoritarian police state. I was there quite a lot in the 19, early 1980s under this general who took over Chen Duan, and it was a scary place, very repressive place. It was a torture state. And, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people were, were uh, jailed, many executed on, fl you know, flimsy charges. And, you know, now it's the North that has the very totalitarian, authoritarian state. It did now, but I think it's, it's, it did then, but I think it's a much more tightened controls now. Uh, South Koreans, however, won their democracy by, on their own. It was not something that, as U.S. officials try to tell you, that it was sort of like they helped them get their democracy. Oh, it was the opposite. <laughs> exactly, it's the opposite. They fought against U.S.-backed dictators that held them back for years. And the U.S., poured in huge amounts of, of military aid and weapons to these dictators and helped keep them in power. And it's a very good atmosphere for American business and selling, you know, American technology and American nuclear power technology, and American oil and chemicals, grain and so on. And South Korea used to be this, you know, huge market. And it was seen as a, sort of pillar of anti-communist, pro-American feeling in the third world at a time, you know, especially in the 70s and early 80s when the U.S. felt very threatened by movements around in the third world, liberation movements. And here was South Korea, a country where there was no anti-Americanism and they were all pro-America. And then all of a sudden, in 1979 and 1980, their precious military you know, 
government in South Korea was, you know, basically taken out by popular revolution. And, and you know, a military intervened in 1980 to prevent a widespread uh, pop popular revolt and the U.S. backed them. And then in 1987, finally, uh, you know, the Korean people just couldn't take any more of this torture state. And, you know, that, that's when the turning point was they poured into the streets opposing, you know, essentially opposing torture because what set off the widespread movement in 1987 in South Korea was the death by water torture of a young Korean, South Korean student. And that became a rallying cry for people all over the country. Like, this is enough. We've had, you know, 40 years of this, no more. And that finally, end, that finally brought about democracy. It took a while to build it, but South Korea now is a very, very dynamic and impressive democracy. Yeah, uh, I mean, there are aspects of some repression, but with Moon Jae-in, they have been trying very hard for unification, despite everything that the U.S. is doing to stop them. <laughs> well, it's, it's, you know, look, this is a, there are, no, of course there are, but I, I, I am serious. It is a very impressive democracy. You go there, you will see the amount of information you can find uh, and, you know, the kind of debate that takes place. Uh, but, uh, I mean, you know, you don't you don't have to worry about speaking out and uh, um, no I, I agree I'm, I I mean I'm just saying but that no they have a they have a national security law that's a very draconian law yes that's what I'm saying it's easy to under the national security law if you say anything that even sounds mildly like what North Korea says you can be jailed for that uh, you can be executed you know so and that law is still on the books it you know it depends on what government is in about how it's enforced, but when conservatives are in power, they often use the national security law to go after all kinds of people, all kinds of dissidents. So, you know, in my view, you know, it's, it, 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 it's not a full democracy until they get rid of that, until they get rid of that law. But as someone who's a citizen of the United States, where we have, you know, a, 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 pre a president who's trying to stifle dissent, and stifle popular movements like the South Korean dictators of those days, you know, well, I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, I think we have to be, you know, limited in our judgments of other, other countries when we have. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I agree with you on that. Yes. The national security law is pretty strange. And often like some guy said his, uh, uh, he admired Kim Il-sung, which is an okay thing to say. He was part of the fight against Japan and he got, prison term for just like randomly saying that at a church and so i understand right and that is a really interesting book like i uh, when do you have plan on having get ready i'm working it'll be it'll be i mean i'm, I'm still you know i'm still plotting out this book so it's going to be a while but it's something it's something you know, I've, I've been working on it for a while well you should come back when you finish the book and we would love to have you back on i'd be happy to do that Oh, how do people find you? Do you have a website? You can find me at Tim T-I-M-S-H-O-R-R-O-C-K.com. Uh, at that site, I have a lot of my, you know, one of the big stories I, I broke a big story a few years ago in 1996, actually, 25 years ago, uh, that 
showed the true U.S. role in South Korea during the period of Kwang, the Kwangju uprising, which was a turning point for the South Korean democratic movement. And then I got, based on a massive freedom of information request, I got thousands of documents that showed, uh, you know, much deeper involvement of the U.S. In, the, in those events that had ever been known. And my stories actually, uh, you know, was, a, was major, was very important for the development of the sort of attitude toward the U.S. of the Korean, South Korean left. I've been told this by many people in the South Korean left. It really opened their eyes to, to uh, you know, what the U.S. does and how the U.S. has treated South Korea. Um, and my website has a lot of the documents uh, that I obtained in a, in a you know, we're, we're trying to build a kind of database for them so people can actually read the documents, which are very, quite interesting, actually. A lesson in U.S. foreign policy at a, at a kind of critical time during the Cold War. So timshorock.com, and of course, you know, if you follow me on Twitter at, at Timothy S., uh, I, I post a lot and probably a little too much. So, um, I was saying the other day, if I hadn't joined in, in 2008, may, maybe I'd have written more books by now. Or not. Oh, you, wouldn't have, ha, you wouldn't have made so many friends. I know, but I, that's exactly right. On the other hand, I appreciate all the people I've met. So it's like a great forum for, you know, new ideas, new people. And, and you know, when, it's, when it works, it's a nice way to engage with people. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on and have a wonderful rest of the day. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Music for this show is done by Rectex. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. Show edited by Rob Granis. And thank you for listening to our show.